problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has has, has anyone ever ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but. Truly, thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. You're there. Stop it. <laughs> New word, IT. So, what are you saying? So, uh, if you fear, just stop it. Let's pray. Um, no. Wouldn't it be that easy? Wouldn't it be great? Don't go to that therapist, okay? Um, the first chapter of Exodus, which we're in, and we're going to go through the book of Exodus, and, and we're going to be looking at each of the verses, so I encourage you, if you would like, to bring your Bible. Often I'll be using NIV. I can use other translations at times, and we'll have scripture up on the screens. Um, but the first chapter of Exodus is really, it pits two ways of living life. One is controlled by fear, and the other is learning how to trust God with your fear. And how do you do that? Because fear has this ability, if it begins to control you, it it leads to obsessive thoughts and obsessive ways of managing things in order to get outcomes that you want. And often what it does is it drives you away from God and also drives you away from other people. So it it has this kind of break in our horizontal relationship as well as regard to our vertical as well as our horizontal relationships. And so... The word of God is, is really interesting because stories like in Exodus are written for like children and, and, and people sometimes have trouble with the Old Testament. But think of it this way. You know, if you're writing a story or telling a story or you're, you're drawing a picture, that's how in that day they would learn. And they would grab it. It was an oral culture. And they weren't each able to pick up a book and to read. They, they had to hear and they had to listen and they have to tell that story again and again. And in each story is embedded in the truth. And in this first chapter is embedded the reality of that, that we live with fear. Exodus, as I, as I kind of said last week, is, is a way out. It comes from the Greek words ex and hadas, which means X out, like exile or exit. You've heard those words. And, and the word hadas is the word for path or way or road. So when you put these two words together as a Greek word, it really means just a way out, which is this series is called. 
And it is the, the, the name of the second book that you will find in the Old Testament. As you go through the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, the second one is called Exodus. And depending on your background, as you will know, Genesis is this book of beginnings and Exodus is this book of a way out. Leviticus is, is known as being boring. No. <laughs> it, it's, it's the Levi's, the, the Levitical law. The priests, in the sense of helping people understand the regulations around the temple and worship. And then there's the book of Numbers, which begins with a, um, a census, a, a, a genealogy. So it, it goes through these numbers, and then Deuteronomy, which means a second giving of the law. There's a first one in Exodus around 20. Now this is the second expanded giving of the law. And so this second book called Exodus, which we find uh, in the Old Testament, was not the original name that the Hebrew people would know. This was a name that was given later. When the Greeks invaded that whole Middle Eastern area, and, and when Greek became the common language, they began to translate this Hebrew scripture into a Greek scripture called the Septuagint, and in that Septuagint, they would title it Exodus. It was the word that kind of kind of gave you the summary of the book, but that wasn't the name of the book for almost a thousand years as the Hebrew people would hear it. Remember, oral culture, they would speak it, and, and what's interesting is the Hebrew name for this book is literally the first six words of the first verse of the first chapter of Exodus, which is, there are the names, these are the names of the sons of Israel. That was the title of the book. And so I'm going to have us read Exodus 1, 1 through 5. It's kind of a, 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 a kind of prologue into this first ch- chapter. So let's stand together. And let's read these together. And, and, you know, if you're having trouble with the names, just push through it. Be confident. We tell our worship people, just be confident. You make a mistake. doesn't matter. So let's see these together. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali. Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for each person here. We open our hearts to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through these words written so many years ago. And that you, who are alive and living, and this word is alive and living, would awaken our hearts to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So these first six words are the exact same words that are found in Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. So those first six words, which was the name for a thousand years or so of this book called Exodus, are found in Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. And they begin like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel. So when they would hear that in Genesis, it would awaken into their mind that this is a continuation of a story of the beginnings. Now the story's moving further along. Genesis 46, 8 continues, the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt, 
Reuben, then it lists the sons of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, it lists them. Of Levi, and it lists them. The genealogy is listed there. The listener would be alert to that and would realize that something's happening here. They'd understand that there's a direct continuation from Genesis. This God is the God of history. This is really important for people who are wandering throughout lands who their leader Abraham, their father, has been brought away from Ur and from Babylon and from a life of, of living in a nice suburb in comfortable surroundings and, and a, a probably a good job to a place where he's wandering, listening to God throughout his life, allowing his heart to be spoken to By the God who is the God of history because Abraham made a choice to bring his life in line with his story. And that also called all of his who followed in faith to say, I want to live my life not writing my own story, God, but allowing your heart to pen and to author my life in your story. And so they hear these words, and, and, and they're important words. And it, it begins with a description of Jacob's grown family in Egypt. So you, you see, these are the names of sons of Israel who went to Egypt. And at this point, as he lists them, he's listing and no longer his kids who are part of this family. They are now grown. In fact, not only grown, they have families that have been there. And they've been there for 300 some plus years, 400 years is what scripture tells us. And the number 70 has kind of a dual purpose. It both relates to the size when we look at the scripture. And if you mind keeping that scripture up there so people can just see that. Um, it relates to both the size and also has a spiritual significance. And so when it says here, um, might be one screen back if you wouldn't mind. Um, when it says 70... You see, numbered 70. It, it, wants, it wants us to look at and go, oh, it was a limited number of people. Actually, a pretty small family. But it also wants us to understand the spiritual significance. The, the number seven throughout scripture is the word of completeness, fullness. It, it's the word of perfect. But when you do seven times 70, like when, when Jesus, Peter says, how many times should I forgive? And he says seven times. And, and, and Jesus goes, no, seven times 70. This idea, not as much as you can, seven times as perfectly as you and your flesh can, but no, seven times 70 is, is as much as God can. Which Peter's going, that's impossible. And he goes, yeah, it's not possible for you, but it is possible for God through you. So the 70 here, 7 times 70, it's this idea that this small group, but it was the full, whole group, the very group that God wanted, the God of history writing his story. And what happens here when you get to the end of 5 is he says 70 were there, but Joseph was already in Egypt. They knew that. They knew that Joseph had come there. He had brought this 70 over because there was a time of famine. And in that famine, he was going to preserve the people of God, the God of history. And what I find interesting in, in this is you get this picture of this. Everyone was there and accounted for, all 70. And what it wants to set up for us and for the people in that day who read this was the fact that God was beginning to do something new. The book of Genesis was now moving to a new stage, a new work of God. He was taking a family that when it says sons of Israel here, it's the last time it really refers to in the sense of the actual sons. It's now when it says sons of Israel throughout the Old Testament, it refers to the people of God. 
And so when he says the sons of Israel, it's a transitional point and moving to a new stage. And what's interesting in moving to this new stage is, is he gives these 12, he lists them there with, jo- with Joseph. Those are 12 <clears throat> that God is now beginning a new covenant with his people, which will happen with Moses. There's an interesting imagery there, and I'll just kind of share this quickly. When Jesus takes 12 disciples, Jesus, like a Moses, is leading his people into a what? A new covenant. Well, so now we're looking at the old covenant. Here's the old covenant. God's getting things in place. The idea is he's moving his plan forward. It's been nearly 400 years since Jacob and his family had moved to Egypt. Can you imagine what it was? A short stay due to a famine ends up being a long stay as a result, ending in slavery and bondage. There is this sense of encroaching fear as the people in that day are beginning to hear the messages that they're a problem. They've grown so big. This 70, which was just a family, has now grown. And if we go to the next slide, it tells us this. It has now grown to the point that they are a nation, a large nation. And what I want you to be thinking about is this. They're in this time of encroaching bondage. They're beginning to feel what? Fear. They're in this land of Egypt. They haven't heard from God. They're beginning to wonder, God, do you remember me? Do you even recall who we are? Have you lost track of us? What do you do with your fear? When our nation seems to be turning away from God, we seem to ignore the plight of those who are powerless. When economically we are heading possibly not for just a mere course correction, but possibly a crash. I don't know what's on your thoughts and your mind around this. When your boss turns up your heat at work, what do you do with the fear? When your marriage seems to be hitting a real rough patch, what do you do with the fear? When your kids are heading down the wrong path. When you've been waiting for God to work. When you seem to be in a place where there seems to be no way out. What do you do with your fear? Well, the word of God makes it really clear as we look at this passage that fear is going to happen in your life. And you have a choice. God has a way to deal with it. And that's what this chapter goes on to share with us. We will all face fear, sometimes daily, sometimes at night. You probably have you woken up where your, your mind just won't stop racing. Have you had times when you're going through the day and you just have, you have a panic attack? You just, the anxiety is so crippling, it's paralyzing. Well, the story continues in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Here is Joseph's dead. His brothers have passed away. That generation died. And God intentionally repeats here in this scripture, given in, in Exodus, three verbs that are found also back again in Genesis. So he's continuing this story. It's, it's the blessing that began the very beginning of the story. He uses those words. They were exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, and increased in numbers. This promise is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. When mankind was created, he, he says God blessed. 
Let us make mankind in our image, it says in verse 26, in our likeness. And then verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. This was repeated again when, when there's a great do-over, when, when the flood came and, and God preserved a group of people, Noah and his family, and after they got out of the ark in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And it was a similar thing that was said again to Abraham and to Isaac, the same blessing. And what you have now, some 400 years later, is God is still increasing their number. He is still multiplying them. He is still causing them to be fruitful. And, and in the midst of it, they have all this blessing going on, but they don't see the hand of God in it. In fact, in the first part of Exodus, his name is not even mentioned. It's this guy, this idea that God is behind the scenes. And I think about that so often when we get into fear. We lose our perspective, don't we? We lose our perspective and all we see is this. And we, we miss so often what God tends to be doing in the background. One of the great things to do when you start to feel that sense of fear is to kind of go, God, I see this and I, I know it's here, but to allow yourself to see how God has been blessing in other ways. And, and one of the ways that you can begin to deal with fear is to worship God for those things he's doing. I, I have, when it comes to the fall, I get this encroaching sense of fear because I hate the shorter days and I get this kind of sad sting. And, and I'll just tell you, I've tried every remedy under the book. So please, um, you can give me your remedies, but um, I think it probably hurt them. But... One of the things that works better than anything for me is when I journal is I try and write right in the beginning all the things I'm really really thankful for. And I I basically lift up the good things that God is doing in my life and how he is blessing and how he's been fruitful and where he's increased and, and those things. And it's interesting when you get a picture of God and you begin to open your heart and your life to God in the midst of it. God has a way for us to deal with it. And one of those ways is to begin just to say, God, look what you're doing. Well, that's what's happening here. Now, if you look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, it says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. They now is far enough away. This 70 people has now gone from a family to being a nation within a nation. And he came to power in Egypt, and he said, Look. He said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us all. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. And what I want you to notice is this interesting um, this statement here. Uh, I think Moses, who grew up for 40 years in the courts of the king, this was probably the stump speech of this new king and dynasty. There was a time when this new king took over and the old dynasty was done. And I think one of the things that he was probably sharing with people was, look, if you don't watch out, this group that is growing within us is going to take over. And what you find in this passage, the next truth I want you to see is is what, what you see here in the word look. He looks with his natural eyes and he makes a conclusion. We feel what we believe. What we believe, what we see and then we conclude and we believe is often what generates our feelings. Not always. There's some physiological things at times, but most often. We see with our natural eyes. We conclude with our natural mind. And then we are driven by the fear that controls us by what we've seen and concluded. Then a new king came in power, in, to, in, came to power in Egypt. Look, see, he sees, and then he concludes, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, because he believes they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Many commentaries will, will tell you that I think a better translation of the leave the country is the idea that they will overthrow the regime of power. 
That was kind of his stump speech. This is how this new king and dynasty kind of took over the old one. They took over, I believe, under the whole idea that things were economically not good. Things were getting worse. They needed to do something. It looked bad because if you look at all this immigrant population, they're all over the place. And this is how fear, this is how fear operates. You look, you see with your eyes, you conclude with your mind, and you think of this outcome, and that outcome forces you to move to a place because you feel what you believe. You are then driven by fear to manage and control. You feel what you believe. I give you another illustration of how this works. When Moses, years later, when he took him through the, the uh, through the Red Sea and then through the desert, and then he he's bringing him to the land of, of promise, he sends in twelve spies. Twelve spies go in, and twelve spies go into this land. They they're just overwhelmed with it. They they bring back this fruit that's just incredible. They got to carry back on on poles, and and they come back and they report to the people. Remember how they reported? They said it is an incredibly good land that God says. That he's been calling us to. But there are giants when we looked out. And we looked at them and we looked at us and we seemed like grasshoppers. So as we looked with our mind, naturally we concluded. And our conclusion was, we can't beat them. We're not going in. Even though God had said again and again and again, This land I promise to give you. How often we see, conclude with our mind, get controlled by fear, by the outcome we think, and we don't leave room for God to step in. That's That's the mind of a natural man, and that's what you see in Pharaoh. Because often when you feel what you believe, the next thing you do is you will do what you feel. You'll do what you feel. We live in a culture right now that is really bound by that. There's a, a, a philosopher named Charles Taylor who talks about this in, in many ways, but he talks about the buffered self. He says we live in a culture today, and it, and, it, and, and it has much to do with the way we look at things. And did you know that the BBC has put out a resource film that is in order to teach children that there are over a hundred gendered identities? Now, I don't want to make light of as we move through this whole thing. But there's a hundred gendered identities. How do you get a hundred gendered identity? Because what's happened, he says, is what we do is in our mind we think something and we feel something. And as we feel something, we don't feel that these things correlate and correspond. And so we begin to say this is far more important than what is factual and what we see. And he says our culture is moving today into that kind of a mindset. That we are so controlled by what we think and feel. And when we feel these things, it then cuts us off. There's a book by Nancy Percy, a couple of them. She calls Finding Truth, and the, and the one she's just come out with is called Love Thy Body. I think it's so relevant to what our culture is looking at today. And so what you see here is we act on what we feel. So we assess, we conclude, we fear, and then we act shrewdly. The word shrewdly is an important word here in verse 10. It's this idea that with his own mind, he comes up with a plan that he can control this so the outcome will happen the way he wants it to be, which is what? A smaller population... So they don't have to what? Fear. 
It's a scheme in Pharaoh's mind. And when you begin to fear an outcome, the next step is if you're fearing and you're in your own self, the next thing is to do is what can I do to control and manage the situation to get the outcome I want, right? You ever, you ever experienced that? I mean, how does that work in your marriage? How, how does that work in, in, in relationship to kids? Or, or, or what about, did anybody work for a boss who is fearing an outcome and they micromanage you? That's, that's basically what it is. I'm going to do everything I can to get to this outcome. So that's what's going on in his mind. Exodus chapter 1, 11 through 14. So they put the slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and they Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. Now catch that word, ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh with labor. That bitter and harsh labor is what you see in the Passover when they take the Passover meal. They talk about bitter herbs, etc. So this is what it refers to. Bitter and harsh labor. And in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. This is his first plan. His first plan was pretty simple. We will work them so ruthlessly, we will work them to the bone. This hard labor will work in such a way that it will actually decrease their population. We'll take the, the men and we'll force them into labor. We'll bring them to some cities where they have to work. They won't be with their spouses. They won't be with their family. And, and, it's, and, and they'll, they'll work in such a way that he takes them from being independent contractors, which happens over a period of time, to now they're forced labor. They're actually become slaves. Slaves. That's his first step. His first plan with this shrewdness of his mind. And his hope was that they wouldn't live that long. They would work so hard it would it would crush them physically and, and, and emotionally. And, and there would be greater illness as a result of this hard work. And there would be a lower survival rate. And, but know what happened? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly, even harder. I, um, I kind of do so the, the roses at our, our house. Um, it's like the one garden thing. I you know, it's one of the things I do. And this year has been, been a tough year. How many have had Asian beetles? You know what Asian beetles are? They're little green beetles with a hard shell. They got kind of a neon green to them, and I can't stand They're Japanese beetles, I think they're called. I can't stand them. They just kill, they eat everything, and they're just all, and so I would take them and I'd crush them or I'd step on them until a friend of mine told me, did you know that every time you crush them, they emit an odor, and when you crush them, the odor attracts more of them? <laughs> a bummer. How many uh, have lived near Lake Minnetonka when the milfoil came in? And, and the big thing with the milfoil is, let's cut it down. And, and cutting down the milfoil is like taking a dandelion and blowing it. <sighs> Oppression works like that. Because here's another truth. Our fear-filled strategies will make matters worse. They won't make them better. Boy, if I can just control this outcome and I can work really hard and I get this outcome here and I'll get my kids to do this and, and all the time your kids might be conforming in their behavior but their heart moves further away from you. And you try and conform your spouse or, or your friend and you do all these things and all you're doing is not only you taking things out of God's hands but you're also putting a wedge between yourself and someone you love. The person who's really good employee that you're beginning to micromanage eventually goes, enough, I'm out of here and gets a better job somewhere else. Because 
Our field-filled strategies make matters worse. I, um, with a bunch of college friends, um, go down to, uh, we, 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 we get together once a year, and this year we went down to Montgomery, Alabama, to uh, just really immerse ourselves in the whole civil rights understanding and movement and, and, and just to better grasp that. So we read a number of books. One of them was a book called King and Kennedy, and its, its line was, no, it's Kennedy and King, the president, the pastor, and the battle over civil rights. And I read that, and I was amazed when I read that. That when the freedom bus would go down and, they, and the oppression that would, the, the immediate response was to oppress. And every time they oppressed, you know what? It just made the message ring louder. What they thought they could kind of control and they did so ruthlessly backfired on them. So then you have to have more control. So the second plan is put in place and, and, and that's what happens here. From forcing people into oppressive labor, Pharaoh takes matters one more step and he, he actually makes things worse. He needs to tighten the grip and so he does so. In verse 15 and 16, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during children, during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. Because the, the oppressive, ruthless labor isn't working. We'll try another strategy, and that is I will get these two women. And whether these two women were the actual leaders at time, or when Pharaoh said, get me two women who will run this in the, uh, in, 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 um, among the Hebrews. And these two are the ones who were selected as the, as kind of the, the wise, knowledgeable ones who would lead this. They were brought before him and this is what the plan was. And it's truly a shrewd plan because the plan was this. First, into forced labor, what we are going to do is strike at the image of God. That's the way it always works. That's how Satan works in your life. He, he works first at the image of God and he creates a slave mindset so he begins to allow you to think that you just don't have any abilities and you can't do anything. You live under this oppressive fear and that you just, you're just not able and yet you have the image of God. You are created with incredible abilities of God. So that's the first thing he does. The second thing he does now is he tries to steal their identity, who they are, the children of God. And the way he does it is really kind of masterful. He reduces and removes any sense of identity. The sons of Israel, God's chosen, prized, treasured people with whom he had promised his divine favor and through whom the plan of salvation would come. Here's what he does. It's not immediate genocide. It's getting rid of the males so that it would slow down the growth and flood Egypt with a supply of enslaved women who would intermarry and bear children and develop a working class with a slavery mindset so eventually they would lose any distinction of being the children of God. Cut right at the identity of who you are. But when Satan does that, he makes you ineffective. He, he loves that. If you don't know who you are and how much you are loved, that's what we sing. We are not slaves to fear. If we move into the, the marketplace where we work with a sense of who we are in God, that where we step, his presence goes. And even though we may be in the midst of, of, of encroaching fear, we know there's a God. And as we step with him, we have that identity. And that's what he's trying to take away from him. One commentator says, daughters could easily be assimilated into the culture as slave wives and easily absorbed into the Egyptian culture with a generation, within a generation or two. But there is another path. There is an exodus, a way out. And we read this in the next few words. The way out is trust. When there seems to be no way in your life, when there seems to be no way out, 
It will require not giving in to fear, but it will also require something else. It will require you trusting God. Because listen to what it says here. Verse 1, chapter 117. And the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. But first, I just want to tell you, two names. Isn't it interesting that two names are recorded? Not even in this is Pharaoh's name recorded, but these two names, Shifra and Pua are remembered forever. There's Not even the elders of Israel's names are listed in here, but these two names are listed because they're the ones who lead out. They're the ones who show the way. They're the ones who walk out. This incredible way of fearing God and not fearing men. And the midwives, however, feared God. They feared God more than they feared the king they saw before them. Shifra and Pua were more afraid of the God they could not see and had no evidence for for many years than they were of the Pharaoh who pardoned his, who paraded his power before them every day. Now, I used the word afraid, but they weren't really afraid of God, if you want to put it that way. There's, there is in fear the sense of the awesomeness and greatness of God. I remember one time at the Niagara Falls going under this cave. I don't know if you've ever done this, but the falls were just coming down and just standing back. They had a rope kind of going, I just didn't want to get too close to that because the force of that was just scary. So there's an aspect of God. It's this incredibly powerful being. But here's the reality of it. To fear God means to fear someone who has an influence and a power that is greater than yours or anything else that could be causing fear, but also knowing he loves you and he is good. There is a God who sees you and knows your fear and says there is someone greater to fear than Pharaoh. You don't need to do what you know is wrong. You can listen to my voice and I will guide you doesn't mean being passive. It means being directed by someone who is greater and who is loving and who is good and who will care for you. It means saying, God, I open my ears to do what you call me to do through your word, through community of friends. God speaks to us in so many ways. And I will lead you. And so here they are. They assess They think, they conclude, and they feel fear. But they believe God. They trust him. You have a choice. In the fear you're in right now. I can tell you when you go through these times of fear, it's painful. And you will fail. But God is a God who loves those who fail and turn again to him. You may feel like you've been in a place and you failed and blown it miserably. And he says, I still love you. I'm here to guide you. And the story continues. The king of Egypt, after he summoned these midwives, asked him, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? I can't imagine how they were thinking, oh God, God, you've got to come through for me. What are you gonna, whether they prepared their answer in advance and trusted God with it, or God gave them that answer as they stood there, it didn't matter. 
they knew God loved them and would care for them. And so they come in before him. <clears throat> the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now that's an interesting answer. <laughs> Think about it. They're almost saying like Hebrew women are not like couch-sitting, reality-watching Egyptian women. These women have vigor and strength. They're in shape. And their babies come before we can get there. How do you argue with that? Story continues. Exodus 1, 21 and 20 and 21. So God was kind to the midwives and people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own and they had no idea that Moses would be one delivered through their obedience. And the Hebrew construction of verse 21 seems to indicate that God had taken special a special act of, uh, of God to care for these women so that they could have children. They probably were older. Many commentators will note this because of the construction. They most likely were childless in old age and without typical family responsibility of other mothers. They were suitable candidates for long-term, dedicated, full-time midwifery among the Israelites. And God blessed their obedience. He gave them children. And through them he raised a Moses. He blessed their courage to trust him to make a way when there seemed to be no way. And notice what verse 22 ends with. Pharaoh, again, in his shrewdness, having looked and concluded and wanting an outcome, tightens the noose more fully. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And why throw it in the Nile? Because I don't think he, I think the Egyptian people would have had a hard time with some of their neighbors to do things that were messy and killy. So, in killing someone. So, he basically said, just take the babies, throw them in the water, they'll go down, you won't have to worry with it. And there's a second thing that was said in that. The Nile, as you'll see when we go to the plagues, was the place where one of their greatest gods was. So, there was a sense it was also in his heart, probably an act of worship and sacrifice and saying, Nile God, deal with this Hebrew God. Because I worship you. I want to tell you, that is the way it goes in my life. And that is this, that when in my natural self, I seek to try and figure things out with my mind so that I can get the outcome that I want, it usually is a mess. We as a church at times face things, as elders face things, and we go in our natural mind. We could try and figure it out, but we can't. That's why sometimes when you hear us as elders, we say we're waiting and we're praying. It's because we really, really believe that God hears us and answers. God knows your fear. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and we're going to just lean into this song and worship together. And then in a moment, we'll have just a moment of of just calling people to pray because I don't want to leave you just with this message. I want you to pray through your fears as well.